0: Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for another beautiful day at Camp Meeting. Thank you for the opportunity you give us to be alive at all, and to be redeemed, and to be co-laborers with you. Help us now to understand how you work, and to find our place in it by your grace, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, very quickly, is there, I don't want to put anybody on the spot, but is there anybody here who was not here yesterday? Okay, there's a small handful. All right, well, let me very quickly review because I only got through portion of the notes from yesterday and I wanted to kind of pick up on that as we begin today, okay? The idea that we're going for yesterday is very simply this, that God has a way of working in his government, in his kingdom of heaven and on earth, that is delegation. Now, primarily delegation, I should say. God does do some things himself directly. Creation redemption, giving of the law of God on Mount Sinai. There's certain things that he doesn't delegate out for somebody else to do. But most of the time in his work for his creatures, he uses other creatures, right? He has the ministration of angels. We looked at that in the courts of heaven. And then we looked at the Old Testament, what the Bible calls the church in the wilderness. And we saw that the, the nation of Israel was supposed to be a reflection of that working order of God in their encampment, in their laws, and their all the workings. And so that basically, just as the Lord had the host of angels as his ministering spirit sent out to minister for those who will inherit salvation, that's what every member of the church of God is supposed to be here on the earth, right? And so I want to establish that mentality as we go forward, that personal ministries work is not just a novel idea, it's just some Adventist invention or it's some traditional thing we just keep doing, that this is actually a mandate, a theological uh, structure that God himself has given us in his word. So that when we do this work, we're actually following God's blueprint that he has given us. Okay, Now, what I didn't share with you, um, just a couple of statements here. I'm going to give you Patriarchs and Prophets, page 376. And again, I'm going to uh, get away. We don't have have it quite yet, but I'm going to get some sort of like link or something I can give you. that You can push that button and download all of these notes, you know, digitally. We'll make sure you have access to that. Okay, I just don't have a copy machine that I can make off all these reams of copies right now. But anyway, says this Patriarchs and Prophets, page 376. God is a God of order. Everything connected with heaven is in perfect order. Subjection and thorough discipline mark the movements of the angelic host. Success can only attend order and harmonious action. God requires order and system in his work now, no less than in the days of Israel. All who are working for him are to labor intelligently, not in a careless, haphazard manner. So, let me be clear, I'm fine with random acts of kindness. But we need something systematic if we're going to truly reflect the working order of heaven. Okay, we need a structure. He would have his work done with faith and exactness that he may place the seal of his approval upon it. Let me give you another one. Review and Herald, October 12, 1905. There was order in the church when Christ was upon the earth, and after his departure, order was strictly observed among his apostles. And now in these last days, while God is bringing his children into the unity of the faith, there is more real need of order than ever before. For as the Lord unites his people, Satan and his evil angels are very busy to undo this unity and to destroy it. Have we seen any examples in recent Adventist history or current Adventist history where disunity is a threat to God's kingdom? Absolutely. Satan exalts. He wants to see us broken. It is Satan's studied effort. Have you thought about Satan studying something? He doesn't shoot from the hip either. He's a planner. He's an organizer. It is Satan's studied effort to lead professed Christians just as far from heaven's arrangement as he can. Therefore, he sometimes deceives even the professed people of God and makes them believe that order and discipline are enemies to spirituality. I'll give you an example of this in my own life. I like a sermonic calendar. I'm, I'm, I'm serious about this. I'll print off a thing and I know if, if I do it well about a year in advance when I'm going to be preaching. And in recent years, I've gotten so nerdy with it that uh, I'll know what the opening hymn's going to be. I know what the scripture reading for the day is going to be. I, I like the whole thing. And what that does for me as a pastor is it lets me breathe easy. It's like cooking all your meals in advance and you stick them in a freezer. <sighs> that's a day I don't have to think about that. I've already got it covered, right? But then people have said to me, well, wait a minute. That's not spiritual. Because shouldn't you just kind of wait for the leading of the Holy Spirit to impress you in the moment? Because that's spiritual, right? In the thinking. But I have some retorts to that, <laughs> Is not the same Holy Spirit there when I created that structure in the first place to make sure I'm not riding on a hobby horse and make sure that all the bases are covered and make sure that people... Couldn't he be there in the planning as well? Furthermore, if the Lord needs to override something, I give him every veto power, right? If he wants to change it on the spot, he's free to do that. Of course, I'm not limiting his power, but I want to cooperate with all of my ability with his working order so that a better work is accomplished, right? Anyway... Yes, ma'am. Yes. After it and
1: comes
0: that needs exactly right. And you say like it's an evidence that God is leading when you see his, you know, his conclusions with this. How did he do that? It's amazing. Yeah. So again, uh, let's see. It is Satan's studied effort to lead professed Christians just as far from heaven's arrangement as he can. Therefore, he sometimes deceives even the professed people of God and makes them believe that order and discipline are enemies to spirituality, that the only safety for them is to let each pursue his own course. But if we see no necessity for harmonious action and are disorderly, undisciplined, and disorganized in our course of action, angels who are thoroughly organized and move in perfect order cannot work for us successfully. They turn away in grief, for they are not authorized to bless confusion, distraction, and disorganization. Is it possible that there's more that the angels would like to do, but they don't have our cooperation, and they are not authorized to sanction that mess? Mm. So I want to go to Matthew chapter 6. Your reference, please. Oh, I'm sorry, that was Review and Herald, October 12, 1905. Let's go to Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 6. And this is going to be the conclusion of yesterday to segue us into our introduction to today. Matthew chapter 6. Jesus gives instruction on prayer. And uh, we, I would typically start with verse 5 and talk about the irony of um, all the ways that he says not to pray, or a lot of the ways that people say to pray today. Um, like verse 7, don't use vain repetitions, and then he gives the Lord's Prayer, and what do we do? We turn the Lord's Prayer into a vain repetition. So there's irony there that we already appreciate, but let's go right to the prayer itself. Verse 8. It says, Therefore do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. Then he says in verse 9, In this manner, no, he didn't say this is the script, but he says this is the manner, this is the template, this is the style, this is the format, right? This is the the spirit of your prayer. In this manner, therefore, pray. And we could probably recite this, but look very closely at verses 9 and 10 particularly. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now look at verse 10. after acknowledging the Father where he is and who he is, the very next thing that Jesus says we should pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. And now look at that next line. On earth, How? As it is in heaven. Now, you could read as it is to be like at the same time as it is in heaven, but I don't think that's what Jesus meant, at least primarily. I think he meant, Lord, we want your kingdom, the way your government runs up there, the way that your will is done in heaven, that that may be reflected here on earth. So it behooves us to understand how heaven operates if we're going to fulfill the Lord's prayer that we have on earth that like it is in heaven. Sister White agrees with this. Listen to this from Historical Sketches, page 288, and think of it in the terms of personal ministries. There are hundreds of millions of men, women, and children who have never heard the truth, and multitudes are constantly going down to the grave without any sense of their accountability to God. So in light of that dire situation, she asked this question. How can you, who repeat the Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, sit at ease in your homes without helping to carry the torch of truth to others? Notice individual labor, she ties to that line in the Lord's prayer. What does she mean by that? How can you lift up your hands before God and ask his blessing upon yourselves and your families when you were doing so little to help others? Then she explains, the heavenly messengers are doing their work, but what are we doing? Brethren <clears throat> and sisters, God calls upon you to redeem the time. So she totally sees that there's this working order of heaven and that the angels are the ministering spirits sent forth and we pray that that his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. She's like, well, that's how heaven works. Why aren't you working that way? This is a call to individual personal ministry. It is God's will as expressed in his word. And at that point yesterday, we would have bowed our heads for a word of prayer. <laughs> but now we're just launching into a new day. So we're going to continue right on into our now second presentation. Yesterday's was entitled, On Earth As It Is in Heaven. Today, we're going to do a message entitled, Who Fed the 5,000? Now, some of you may have heard a presentation like this at some point before. You might have heard it from me. You're going to get seconds today. You're welcome. That's a- <laughs> Let's go to Matthew chapter 4. We're already in the book of Matthew. Just go back now to Matthew chapter 4. We might have a little time for question and answer at the end of this, but I'm not too sure. We'll see how the time goes. Matthew chapter 4. Jesus, again, is beginning his public ministry, and and I want you to keep in mind the chronology of what we're doing through this whole series. We started... With Revelation 4, looking at heaven's order, right? We looked at the throne room of God and saw how the millions of angels and they're all ministering spirits. Then we went down to the earth to see that that working order was what God intended for His church to be modeled after, with the sanctuary and all the organization of Israel, and that the church in the wilderness was simply to be a reflection of the church in heaven. Okay? So we went from heaven to the Old Testament. Now we're going to go to the ministry of Jesus. We're looking at this continuous thread of personal ministries. Okay? Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is collecting his first disciples. And it says here, let's go to verse 18. And Jesus, walking by the sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Now, I asked a question yesterday that I don't know if any of you remember what the question was, and I asked you to marinate on it and think about it, and I don't know if anybody even remembers the question, but let's start with an extra credit point. <laughs> Can anybody remember what the question even was? Jesus make disciples? Yes, thank you, brother. Why did Jesus have disciples? Jesus had a very specific task he had to accomplish and he was a very busy man and he only had three and a half years of public ministry to do it, right? And by the way, did Jesus understand his mission earlier than when his mission started? Yeah. Yes. The earliest example of his understanding of his mission is at the age of 12, right? When he was in the temple and he sees the Lamb, Spirit of Prophecy tells us that he put all the connections together, what he had been studying. He sees the culmination in himself and he said, aha, And he could say to his earthly parents, do you not know I need to be about my father's business? He understood his father's business. At least the realization was impressing upon him. But he was 12 years old. But for the next, how long did he go back home? 18 18 years. years. What was he doing? Preparing. If you remind me later in this seminar, I don't know if we'll get it today. Because I don't know if I have the quote right off the top of my head. But there's a fascinating statement in the Desire of Ages about what Jesus was doing in those 18 years. And I'll give you a hint. And by hint, I mean I'll tell you the answer right now. (laughs) He was doing personal ministries. He was not doing any acts of miraculous healing. But she makes the statement, and we'll look it up in Desire of Ages so you can get the reading right, but she talks about how he... how. You know, goodness and graciousness came out of him. He was, uh, he was a bomb and he was helpful and all this kind of stuff. And then she says, and this is why later on people accepted his word. Because he had prepared the soil of the heart through personal ministry. And then he comes back around and when he preaches that word they're ready to hear from him. It's a pretty cool thing. Anyway, but Jesus of course waited until he was 30. Why? Because he had a calendar in his mind, right? He operated on, <laughs> on a calendar. He did. Because he read the Bible, he knew about the prophecies of Daniel, and so it wasn't until he was 30 years old that begins his ministry, and that gives him only a three-and-a-half-year window to finish up, because in the middle of that seventh year, right, of uh, 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 the 70th week, right, he was being cut off. And so, I don't know if you've ever been busy before. <laughs> But in the middle of your busyness, is it helpful to have a gaggle of people going along with you that you have to, like, tend to? Wouldn't it be easier just to do the thing yourself? I don't know if you've ever been a part of a group project or anything like that, but I'm not necessarily a fan of that. I'd rather, like, if I had a class, I'll just do it myself. I don't have time to try to teach somebody. I just got to get in there and do it. But Christ starts from day one bringing along disciples. Yeah, why? And I do not believe it's because he just wanted witnesses to his work. Well, we'll see here. He was training. He, was training him. he tells them, in fact, look at what he says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 19. I will make you fishers of men. Mm-hmm. When the disciples came along with Jesus, they weren't just following him around. When he said, follow me, that means imitate me, become like me, right? I'm going to make you The book of Mark says, I'm going to make you become fishers of men. They were enlisting in a training course. They were not just eyewitnesses to what Jesus was doing. They were going to be workers themselves. Take a look at this. In John chapter 3, let's give an example of it. John chapter 3, verse 22. And if you start to understand that everything Jesus did in his ministry He did not only to accomplish that particular, his personal part of it, but was also in mind to build up a church in his name that would exist after his departure, right? He was starting a movement. He wasn't just coming to do a thing. He was trying to build this church. John chapter 3 and verse 22. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. If all we had was that text alone, we could ask the question, did Jesus baptize people? And the answer would have to be yes. But we keep reading. Now, John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem because there was much water there and they came and were baptized. Now, of course, we know there's a dispute and back and forth, back and forth. And we go to chapter four. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees heard that Jesus made and baptized, there it is again, the understanding that Jesus made disciples and baptized them more than John. But then look at the parenthetical verse two, parenthetical verse two, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his whom? Disciples. So you get the idea that Jesus was doing the preaching and he was doing the leading of the people to that conviction and that conversion, but the actual act of baptism Jesus didn't do. His disciples did that. He was training them, and they were his apprentices in ministry. Um, let's look at Luke, uh, John, uh, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 9. We could give many, many examples of this, but let's go to uh, Luke chapter 9. Verse 1 says, Then he called his twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he said to them, take nothing before the journey, neither staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have tunics, tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And whoever will not receive you when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So they departed and went through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now, up until that point, who had been preaching and healing? Jesus had. But at this point, he says, now I'm going to give you the authority to, in my name, do what I've been doing, preaching and healing. And notice he gives them very... Practical instruction. He said, hey, I want you to go two by two. I want you to go to these towns. And here's, when you go to town, here's what you do. And if they don't receive... He's training them. Now, again, let's think it through. You would imagine that with only three and a half years of public ministry, that these disciples wouldn't want to spend a second away from Jesus. And that if Jesus is trying to teach them everything they need to know about building up the church... I mean just doctrinally getting their heads screwed on straight, right? That's a big deal. He had to, like, heal them of their prejudice and their Sabbath misunderstandings and their, you know, dominionism over the Romans. He's got to get all of that ironed out in their heads and teach them how to win souls. We can't afford to lose a moment of personal time with Jesus. But in Jesus' mind, there came a point in his ministry where you've been watching me enough, you've been assisting me enough, now it's time for you to go out and get some practice. Mm -hmm. And so he sends them out. He purposely sends them away. And he gives them very practical instruction. Here's what you take with you. Here's where you go. Here's what you do. And he sends them off. Why? (laughs) Because they need practical experience in ministry. By the way, wouldn't it be nice to get practical experience in ministry before Jesus leaves? (laughs) Do you think they got it right every time? Remember when Jesus came down from the Mount of Transfiguration? And, and she's just like, oh man. <laughs> but he had to work with these guys and turn them in. We'd, I mean, Peter wasn't the great Apostle Peter. He was Fisherman Peter. He had to be built into a fisher of men, right? And so Jesus patiently does this. And in his training method, he saw the advantage to giving them practical experience. Now go to chapter 10 of Luke, which is right next door, Luke chapter 10, verse 1. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also. We don't have time for this, but do you notice something interesting? In the church in the wilderness, in the Old Testament church, there were the 12 tribes, the 12 sons of Israel. And then there was also the 70 elders. Here Jesus has his 12 disciples who will become the 12 apostles and he appoints 70 others also. You almost get the picture that Jesus understood heaven's model and he instilled it in the Old Testament church because wasn't it not Christ who was leading that church then? He was the pillar of fire and cloud, right? Right. And he set up the 12 and the 70 in the organization of the camp. But by the time Jesus shows up as a baby and grows into a young man, the church that had been established in the wilderness was not at all, you know, instead of being a light to the Gentiles, they built walls around the Gentiles. and They wouldn't talk to them. And look at it. There was a completely distorted. So he had to reformat their understanding of how the church should work. So he's rebuilding those foundations of ancient Israel in his own ministry. So he's got the 12 apostles. And he's got the 70 others. And why does he send them out? Look at chapters 10, verse 1. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was what? About to go. All right, fine. If you're going to delegate, at least get some efficiency out of it. And you go over there and I'll go over here. Let's kill two birds with one stone. Even though Jesus wouldn't go about killing birds, you know, (laughs) you understand what I'm saying. That why have the helpers, if they're just going to go a place where you're yourself are just about to go anyway? Talk to me about why that would make sense. That personal What's that? that, personal ministry, making friends and getting that soil okay, I like that. Maybe they were doing soil preparation. That's a good answer. I think there's another answer too, equally valid. Overseeing them training. Overseeing them training. I think if I sent somebody out to do something the first time, if I sent someone, my kid to go mow the grass for the first time, I'm probably going to have him go where I'm about to go myself, right? <laughs> or go paint this thing that I'm going to go paint. And, you know, you're going to go check up on them, follow up on them, give them some accountability, give them some, some feedback, right? So Jesus sends them out, not to places he himself doesn't have time to take care of, but specifically places he's about to go. Prepare the way. And let me see how you're doing. So he's helping the people who are going to receive him, and he's helping them get ministry training. He's brilliant. And then he explains why he's doing all this. Then he said, verse 2, to them, the harvest truly is great, but the what? The laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. He gives his rationale for working in this way it's because we've got a great harvest and we need more workers remember that's how heaven operates millions of frontline workers that's how israel was supposed to operate a sea of representatives right and jesus said if we're going to build a church on heaven's model we need personal ministry we need laborers out there in the field He doesn't say, pray that the Lord will slow down the harvest. He says, pray that the Lord will increase the harvesters. Listen to this statement from Acts of the Apostles, page 32. In all his work, in how much of his work? All his work. He was training them for individual labor. Now notice this next clause of the same sentence. To be extended as their members, as their numbers increased. And eventually to reach the uttermost parts of the earth. Notice that individual labor, what we would call personal ministry, was not supposed to be a stopgap measure until we can build a big church and an institution. It is supposed to just only increase. For instance, if you have a church of 10 people, you need all 10 people working, right? <laughs> if you have a church of 100 people, how many people should be working? 100. <laughs> but what happens? When a church goes from 10 to 100, those same 10 are still working. You've got 90 watching. That's right. We get the 90-10 rule. How do you get the 100 to work? I'm sorry? Okay, so how do you get the 100 to work? <laughs> By God's grace, that's what we're talking about here, sister. But at least we can acknowledge the problem, right? When you're in a little church, you don't have the option of deferring to this committee or this council. You're it, right? But in a bigger church, you're like, oh, good, somebody. And then all of a sudden, it goes from here I am, send me, to here we are, send us, which really means here we are, nobody's going to do it. Right? And so you end up with this institutional glut. In fact... Mrs. White says this, Ministry of Healing, page 147. Everywhere, there is a tendency to substitute the work of organizations for individual effort. I mean, I see it right here in the Michigan Conference. I love these initiatives, like Unlock Revelation, right? Right? But it's easy to when we or BibleStudyOffer.com. Oh, we've gotten X many hundreds or thousands of Bible study interests. Good. That means I don't. We start to say good. The numbers are big, so that means I can get on a little bit of a. I can relax a little bit. We all have that tendency. So I'm not throwing anybody to the bus. She said everywhere there is this tendency to substitute. What did she say here? Everywhere there's a tendency to substitute the work of organizations for individual effort. Now, that's not to say we shouldn't have the organizations. I just did a whole soliloquy on how great organization is. But organization is only as good as each part of it, right? Everywhere there's a tendency to substitute the work of organizations for individual effort. Human wisdom tends to consolidation, to centralization, to the building up of great churches and institutions, Multitudes leave to institutions and organizations the work of benevolence. Somebody got a a synonym for benevolence. It's not really a word that we use in everyday parlance. uh, What does it mean? What does benevolence mean? Yeah. Disinterested benevolence is even a bigger phrase, but I appreciate you taking it up a notch. That's nice. Yeah. Well, let's start with the first part. Doing good things for others, that's the benevolent part, without expecting something in return is the disinterested part. right? But the idea is we should have that motivation. But if nothing else, benevolence is the doing of good for others. Doing good. right? But notice what she says. Multitudes leave to institutions and organizations the work of benevolence. They excuse themselves from contact with the world and their hearts grow cold. They become self-absorbed and unimpressible. Love for God and man dies out of the soul. Christ commits to his followers an individual work, a work that cannot be done by proxy. Ministry to the sick and the poor, the giving of the gospel to the lost is not to be left to committees or organized charities. Individual responsibility, individual effort, personal sacrifice is the requirement of the gospel. Now think about that. Ministry to the poor and sick is left to committees or organizations. Praise the Lord for Adra. But that doesn't excuse you from helping your neighbor. See what I'm saying? I love that Loma Linda is doing cutting edge medical research, but I should still bake bread for people, right? See what I'm saying? We, just because we have this big thing, praise the Lord for Mark Finley, right? But we should still be evangelists. That's Praise the Lord for all that, but that still is just a model of what we should individually be doing. Mm. Let's get back to the Bible. John chapter 11. Let me give you an example of this in the ministry of Jesus. Because again, this, this message, we're just looking at how Jesus came to teach this personal ministry approach to the work. John chapter 11, we have the story of Lazarus. Again, you're very familiar with this story, but let's look at it through the lens of personal ministry. Sounds a little bit weird, but let's take a look. Start with verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and his sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Now I think that there is more... I love the way that John words this story. Watch carefully. He does some almost... I don't want to say funny, but he certainly does some intriguing p- word play here. Okay? Now watch this. When Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified through it. So he gets a message and he says, ah, oh, this sickness, it was not going to end in death, but this is an opportunity for the glory of God. If you heard that it's not going to end in death, you would probably assume that that means that there won't be death involved. Right? It didn't say it's not going to go through death. It's just not unto death. It's not ending in death. Okay. Now, look at verse 5 and verse 6. Notice the wordplay. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, so whatever we're about to read he's about to do is because of his love for them, right? He loved them. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Notice he stayed because he loved. Lazarus is sick. (sighs) All right, let's let him die. Because I love him. That's weird. It's weird. But it's cool. Let's keep going. Then, verse 7, after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And of course, they argue about how dangerous that is, and we don't need to get into that exactly, but... Um, let's go down to verse 12. uh, I'm sorry, verse 11. These things he said. And after that, he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. I I want you to notice this and it's just dawning me now. He doesn't say, I go that he may wake up. He says it more specifically. I go that what? I may wake him up. That's an important nuance that I just caught. We're going to build on this in a second. Okay, verse 12. Then the disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. Isn't that what we want? However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Now watch the word play. Lazarus is dead and I am glad. He's dead and I'm happy. <laughs> that is messed up. He loved him so much, he didn't come visit or heal him. And then when he died, he's like, good. It's right there. Because he knew what was going to happen. Well, let's let's let him explain. And I am glad, but notice why he's glad. I am glad for whom? For your sake. He didn't say, good for Lazarus. Good riddance. No, 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 no. I'm glad for your sakes. So Jesus was looking at this resurrection of Lazarus, he knows is about to come, as a benefit, not just for Lazarus, of course, but who? For the disciples. That you may, what? Believe. That means that there's something that they do not yet believe. There's something they don't grasp by faith, they don't appreciate about Jesus yet. And of course, the ever-present ray of sunshine that is Thomas... <laughs> Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Imagine this. I mean, this, these are the 12 people Jesus was hanging out with constantly. Man, as if the Pharisees and Sadducees and those people weren't enough. I mean, if, the, if these are your friends who needs enemies, this kind of thing. Verse 17. So when they came, when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews who had joined the women were around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Now, Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Now, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother might not have died. No, no. Would not have died. Quick question. Does Martha believe Jesus had the power to heal. Yes. Yes. But the implication of the statement is, but now it's too late. late." But then she she hedges her bet a little bit in verse 22. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Does she have faith that God can raise the dead? Yes. She has the faith that Jesus can heal the sick. And she has faith that God can raise the dead. But what's the piece that she's missing? Yeah. Yeah. You'll notice in this story that everyone, and I mean everyone mentioned in the story, believes that Jesus can heal the sick. But no one, and I mean no one in the story, believes that he can raise the dead. So Jesus looks at this as an opportunity for them to learn something they need to know about him. Okay? Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Does she believe in the resurrection of the dead? Yes. Does she believe in the power of God? Yes. She just believes it's only him then instead of Jesus now. Which is where I I think that Jesus actually speaks from genuine frustration. I I know that all the Jesus movies kind of make him almost like distant and aloof, like, oh But Jesus tries to speak in as plain of language as possible. He looks at it and Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Who do you think it is that's coming at the last day? (laughs) That's me too, right? I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe that I'm the resurrection and the life? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. It's kind of a timid response. He said, do you believe this? Well, I do believe that you're the son of God. But I ask you, do you believe that I'm the resurrection of life? Uh, (laughs) Anyway, Martha comes. I'm sorry, Mary comes. Look at verse 32. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. (sighs) Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. What was troubling Jesus? These people still don't get it. I'm on a countdown clock and, I got, and they don't know who I am yet. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. And they said, look how much he loved him. Sister White tells us why he was weeping. It was for them. They didn't understand. They were so far from where they could be and look at verse 37 and some of them said could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have what kept this man from dying they all viewed jesus as a semi god a kind of god a demigod a something but not you know god god that he can that there was like a hierarchy of ability he could he was strong enough to cure disease, but not powerful enough to raise the dead. That they viewed death as stronger than Jesus. Yes, ma'am. Uh, you know, in, in chapter 8 of John, you know, they, they, they've they tried to stone him many times for saying that he's God. Yeah. I don't even understand, you know, I guess he just really had to prove it, but they were constantly trying to kill him. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the frustration in Jesus' ministry must have been like epic. Everywhere he goes, he's like, I'm going to tell you plainly. I'm going to show you evidence. They're like, no, 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 no. They they, they just didn't. They weren't with him. No wonder Jesus groaned and wept. Okay. Now, let's go down to the salient part of the story. Verse 38. Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Now, let's set the stage here. Everyone from the mourners to Martha and Mary and even his closest disciples, all of them are doubting his ability to do this level of miracle. They just don't think he has that kind of divine strength. Okay? So everyone, everyone is doubting his power. Right? And he walks up to the tomb to demonstrate his ability. And the first thing that's there is a what? A stone. Now, in that scenario, what would you be tempted to do if you were Jesus? Everybody thinks I'm weak. Exactly. I'll show them. I'll roll it. I would, do, I would do better than just one up and roll it away. I would do it in a divine power kind of way. Exactly. I would do it remotely, like flick, be gone stone. I would do it in an Old Testament kind of way. I would open the earth and swallow it all. I'd send fire from heaven, right? I just some sort of like boom. And then look at him like, you believe me now? You know, like, but he doesn't. He comes up and he's like, and everybody's, you know, pins and needles. What's this guy going to do? He's going to the grave. And he's like, can somebody get the, the... And you know their hearts were like, oh, come on. You can't, not even the rock, right? There's a dead. you can't do, if you can't do the rock, you can't do anything about the dead, right? And he says, take away the stone. And notice that this is where, this is the moment that Martha tries to step in and save face a little bit for Jesus, Martha, the sister of him who is dead, said to him, "Lord, by this time there's a stench, he's been dead four days. Like, as if to say, like, you know, it, he's real, real dead. He's not just sick. And you know, if you open the tomb, it's going to be, it's, it's not going to smell good. And um, we know you mean well. We know your heart's in the right place. And if you, they were southern, bless your heart, right? But notice what Jesus said. Jesus said to her." Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Now move that rock. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when they had when he had said these things he cried with a loud voice Lazarus come forth. And he who had been dead he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes and his face was wrapped with a cloth and Jesus said to them loose him and let him go. I don't know if you've ever thought about the logistics of verse 44. But Lazarus is dead in that tomb, all wrapped up, prepared for burial, right? He's already, they've already had the funeral. I mean, he's in the, in, the, in the grave. And Jesus calls him forth. And the Bible is very specific about his, his circumstances at the time of his you know, regeneration. The Bible lists off, it doesn't just say he's bound, but what is it? it lists off specific parts of his body. What were they again? Hands, and his feet and his face, right? So, if someone had wrapped you up with gauze from your head to toe, whatever, and bound your feet together, bound your arms to your side, and wrapped your face up, and then someone says, hey, come here. (laughs) What are your options for mobility here? What could you possibly do? I like that one, you know. I mean, you think my first thought is maybe some sort of little shuffle, a little, you know, shimmy. Or I like yours, the hop, you know. Wouldn't it be great, by the way, and he who had died hopped forth from the grave. <laughs> it, yeah, if it's all tied up, you might even have the bending of the knees, you know. So there might only be the one remaining most... <laughs> It'd be great if, if you just hear the thud. And I'm like, what? And then he rolls out of the tomb, you know? But Jesus looks, however he came out, it was noticeable, right? And and Jesus says, Guys, come on, loose him, let him go. What a weird story. He is sick, so I stayed away. He has died, and I am glad. It's so interestingly written. But particularly the miraculous part. Jesus didn't move the stone and he didn't unwrap the body. That sounds good. I'm not against it. But let's get uh, Spirit of Prophecy on it. Listen to this. From the Desire of Ages, commenting on that phrase, take ye away the stone. Christ could have commanded the stone to remove and it would have obeyed his voice. Just like yesterday we talked about he could have commanded the disease to impart and if it would have obeyed. Christ could have just said there, move stone and it would have just gone. He could have bidden the angels, by the way, who were close by his side to do this. That would have been a trick, just to see the stone float in angel hands. and you know, At his bidding, invisible hands would have removed the stone. But it was to be taken away by human hands. Thus, Christ would show that humanity is to cooperate with divinity. Now listen to this. What human power can do divine power is not summoned to do. Why didn't Jesus move the stone? Because that's a thing people can do. You don't need a miracle from on high to move the rock. Just go do it. Why didn't Jesus unloose those grave clothes? Because that's a thing people can do. What human power can do, divine power, is not summoned. Friends, God can do all of those things, right? So let's be clear. Just because God can do doesn't mean that God will do. What God has given you the ability to do, He's not going to do. Now, let's take it soul winning. I cannot bring about conversion of any soul. Amen? Amen. However, I can have a conversation with the soul, let's put it in more stark terms. We pray for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the latter rain power to give this message, you know, to the world. What are we exactly expecting to happen? I think a lot of us have a picture in view that, yeah, that we have a view like if we pray hard enough and we really center our mind on that miracle, that we're going to witness the day of Pentecost, that the Holy Spirit's going to be poured out. Whoosh, and we're just going to watch this world be won by Jesus himself. No. <laughs> what happened on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out? Peter got up and preached. They, they empowered the workers to do the work. Friends, the three angels' message is not a spectator sport. Jesus was trying to teach two lessons when he did this miracle that day lesson number one he wanted to show what he can do right everybody was doubting what he can do and he said I'm gonna show you what I can do I'm gonna raise the dead by the way you did he not notice he didn't delegate the raising of the dead part that was divine direct right number lesson number one he wanted to show is what he can do but lesson number two he wanted to show what we can do she explains Again, what human power can do, divine power is not summoned to do. God does not dispense with man's aid. He strengthens him, cooperating with him as he uses the powers and capabilities given him. Mm. Desire of Ages. Desire of Ages, and for some reason I don't have the page notation in here. There you go. 537, was it? 536, 37? Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's look at one more example of this. teaching in Jesus' ministry. Jesus was always looking for opportunities to explain how the church was supposed to work. Because I always grew up with this idea that the disciples were called by Jesus to simply be eyewitness testimony what Jesus had done, proof that he was really there. You guys saw it and therefore existed. And so we're always just looking back at what Jesus did. But I don't believe that's the case anymore. I believe sincerely that God established those disciples because he wanted to train them for how they should continue to do ministry, right? He was trying to build them into the ministers that would continue his church in his name. And with that perspective in mind, Jesus was always just like there in the story of Lazarus, looking for opportunities to teach this method. Let's look at Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, we'll start there with verse 35. This was a day where Jesus was teaching all day long and the people were listening with rapt attention to every word and time got away from them. We're going to do our best not to have that happen today. Mark chapter 6, verse 35, when the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place and already the hour is late. Send them away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. But he answered and said to them, You give them something to eat. So he was like, By the way, the simple, the, were they wrong and what a simple solution? We've been here a long time. Let's, let's dismiss and let them go get something to eat. They weren't trying to escape any duty. They were just like, This is the logical thing to do. We're done. Send them home. But Jesus is like, Let's do better than that. Let's make it a teaching moment, as they say, right? So, do you give them something to eat? And they said, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? By the way, I don't think the ever the right response is to sass Jesus. (laughs) Raising children now has given me a new appreciation for the restraint that Jesus demonstrated in his own ministry, right? Wouldn't you just want to like, oh, I'm going to just, you know, I just want to shake them. You know? I'd love to see what one time that Jesus just turned Peter over his knee and gave him a spanking right there. It's like discipline this kid. I mean, they come back with like, oh, I'll get it. We're supposed to go and buy two. But Jesus, a better parent than I, responds, verse 38. But he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. I love the simplicity of that. Before we get all blown out of this million-dollar meal, right? Have you even found out what we've got to start with? Let's just put it in perspective. Let's calm down a little bit and just start, okay? How many do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. Now, imagine, what do you think they were thinking when they came back with five and two fish? all right, we're done. (laughs) Clearly, it doesn't work. Or, I told you so. Right? They're like, all right, we did your whole go and find out. Here's five and two fish. Can we be done now? But I love Jesus. He's like, perfect. That's just right. By the way, there's a lesson in there for us, too. Lord, I don't have a degree. I don't have this and that. He's like, well, what do you have? I don't know all the answers for Daniel Revelation. I couldn't explain the 2300 days exactly. He's like, But what, what do you know? What do you have? Do you have any story at all? Do you have any testimony? Well, let's start with that. Before you get all like, oh, let's just go get Doug Batch. No, 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 no. Doug Batch is fine, but I want you to do feed them. What do you have to start with? Just start there. So practical. Verse 39. Then he commanded them, to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. Now, if you go to Google Images and try to find a picture of this story, it kind of confirms what I had always had growing up that the feeding of the 5,000 was just kind of a there was a big group, and of course, there's besides women and children, so it's a multitude of people, right? And they were just kind of standing up, scattered, milling about, and then Jesus was up there with his disciples, and the, the miracle happens, and then they just kind of dole, uh, randomly doling out bread in baskets and whatever to the people. But look very closely, that's not at all what happened. Now, let's think about the logistics of the miracle. We know the end of the story. We know how the bread is gonna be provided. It's a miracle from God, right? So, what would be the easiest, most efficient, straightforward way to feed those 5,000? Recently, I've thought of an even more efficient way than I had originally thought of, but let's hear some of your suggestions. Okay, he could directly just rain it down from heaven. Okay? I mean, it's not like he hadn't done that before. Line them all up. Line them up. That's a good one. Get a total of who's there. And have enough food to distribute to all. Okay, total it up. I like the you must be an accountant, the statistical analysis. All right, how many do we have? Let's make a chart, you know. Um, okay, that's a thought. My thought was, oh, go ahead. Just make everyone have bread in their hands. Yeah, that was my first thought, and then I had a better thought. Why stop at their hands? Just put it right in the stomach, right? And be like, oh. and people are like, oh. <laughs> and if he's a really kind God, give him a taste to go in their mouth. They're like, all right, it tastes like bread. It feels like bread. Oh, this is the most efficient meal I've ever had, you know? But you're right. He could have just said, all right, hands out, everyone. Let's pray, right? And then on, bing, in their hand would have been, but he doesn't do that. He goes through this whole organization thing first. Look again at Mark chapter 6. We're in verse, what, 39 there? Then he commanded them. Now, who's the them? The disciples. How do we know that? Because he commanded them to make them. There's that other them that's the crowd, right? So he commands them, the disciples, to make them, the crowd, sit down. Now, if Jesus wanted everyone to sit, could he have done that more efficiently? Yes. He could have done something very clever, like say... Everyone sit. Would they have obeyed? Yes. Were they listening to that one voice all day? Yes. But he doesn't. He says, you make them sit down. So I'm guessing Peter at this point would have stepped forward and said, I got this one. Everybody sit. She's like, slow down. Sitting would have taken maybe 10, 15 seconds. Everybody sit. Oh, yeah. And they're down. But he didn't just say sit down. Look again. Sit down how? In groups. Now, It gives us even more detail. You're skipping ahead. But let's go to it. Verse 40. So they sat down in ranks. Notice that they're not just sitting. They're sitting down in groups and those groups are in order. They're ranked. And the groups have specific sizes in hundreds and in (coughs) fifties. By the way, roughly estimates about the average side of the Seventh-day Adventist church. Every local Seventh-day Adventist church is about 50 to 100 people. And they're in ranks, in little groups, organized by the disciples. What, pray tell, is Jesus up to? He's training his disciples in the process. I think he's training them to run churches. By the way, we're going to see that tomorrow. But let's finish this story today. All right, I'm not going to leave you cliffhanger, but, but it, it, we have clearly established this is perhaps the single least efficient way of getting this job done. Right? Like I'm going to work through the disciples and they're going to work through the people and organize them in groups. And in those groups, there's going to be a, a chair of the group and then a secretary of the group and ranked in order. And why on earth? Go to this much trouble. Let's keep looking. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fish he divided among them all. So they all ate and were filled. Now, still even in this picture, the image that I had is that Jesus prayed, broke the bread And in the distribution, it multiplies, and he gives to the disciples. And the disciples go out and give to all the people. But if the disciples went around to every man, woman, and child in the room, then the question begs, why have the organization? What was the purpose of the organization in the preceding two verses? Yes. And why the ranks? And then what would the group do? So the disciples just didn't go to every member person. They just went to each group and handed them their stuff. And then what would the group do? Take a wild guess. You'd have a natural leader. You'd have a leader who would delegate to this one, to this one, to this one. By the way, again, Sister White, not a theologian, but a prophet. Listen to this Desire of Ages, page 369. In this parable, this story of the feeding of the 5,000 is wrapped up a deep. Spiritual lesson for God's workers. Here it is. Christ received from the Father. He imparted to the disciples. They imparted to the multitude. And we would all probably naturally stop there, but she goes one step farther. And the people to one another. Why is the church organized? Acts of the Apostles, page 9, church was organized for service. The reason we have the church is to organize its members to be workers in God's cause because we want to do God's will on earth as it is in heaven. Now, let's put a, put a, a bookend on this story and realize what we've just said, that if this is true, which I, of course, believe the Bible is true and the Spirit of Prophecy explanation is true, then that means that there were many people, I would dare say the vast overwhelming majority of the people that day, never came into direct contact with Jesus or his disciples. But everyone ate. So, which begs the question, the title of the message who fed the 5,000? <laughs> yeah. I mean, would it be fair to say that God fed them? Yeah. Yes. Would it be fair to say that Jesus fed them? Yeah. Yes. Would it be legitimate to say that the disciples fed them? Yes. But it would be legitimate to say that they fed themselves? Yeah. Yes. Delegated order. Exactly. Because all of them were working together for the... This is the reason God took his time with this miracle. He has a deep spiritual lesson for all of his workers. That's why we have the church and its organization. Now, oh okay, let's wrap this up. Let's wrap it up this way. Revelation chapter 22. Talking about individual labor, right? It's a whole point. Here we're learning about the doctrine of personal ministries, the Bible basis for why we do work this way. The very last page of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, the final call to the world is given. Verse 17. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. Of course, the Spirit is the Holy Spirit, right? And who is the bride? The church. So the Spirit is appealing to the world. Come. The church collectively appeals to the world. Come. But look at the next line. And let him who hears, that is the individual who hears, and it does not say, let him who hears come. Look very closely. What does your Bible say? Let him who hears say say." come God is calling people the church collectively is to call people and members individually let him who hears say come that from literally the opening pages to the closing page of scripture is the expectation of personal ministry in the work of saving souls Listen to this now. Acts of the Apostles, page 110 through 111. I'm going to read you just a few paragraphs in closing here. And she's commenting, by the way, directly on Revelation 22:17. 17. Notice this. Mm-hmm. Not upon the ordained minister only rests the responsibility of going forth to fulfill this commission. Everyone who has received Christ is called to work for the salvation of his fellow man. And she quotes, The Spirit and the Bride say, come, and let him that heareth say, come. The charge to give this invitation includes the entire church. Everyone who has heard the invitation is to echo the message from hill and valley saying, come. She goes on to explain, it is a fatal mistake. Notice a fatal mistake is worse than others' mistakes. Because a fatal mistake is the last mistake you'll ever make. Other mistakes you can do again. This one ends it. The fatal mistake to suppose that the work of soul saving depends alone upon the ministry. I'm not going to dive into the women's ordination question. Everyone say amen. <laughs> but I will tell you this much. I have heard people pro- proponents of that give the rationale for why we need to ordain more individuals. It's because we've got a world that's lost and we need people out there winning souls. What is the implication of that argument? That you got to be ordained to go win souls. I have responded to individuals this way. Even if I believed that your position was valid, you're not the one I would ordain. Because if you're waiting for some sort of certificate or recognition or ordination or paycheck or title or some sort of position before you go win a soul, you're not a soul winner. The individual labor is what God is looking for. And if the church goes one way on that, praise the Lord, if it goes another way, that's fine. I'm trusting the Lord in that one. But aside from all those considerations, please disabuse your mind because she says it's a fatal mistake to suppose that the work of saving souls alone upon the ordained minister She goes on to explain. The humble, consecrated believer upon whom the master of the vineyard places a burden for souls is to be given encouragement by the men upon whom the Lord has laid larger responsibilities. Those who stand as leaders in the church of God are to realize that the Savior's commission is given to all who believe in his name. God will send forth into his vineyard many who have not been dedicated to the ministry by the laying on of hands. Mm. She goes on. Hundreds, yea, thousands who have heard the message of salvation are still idlers in the marketplace when they might be engaged in some line of active service. To these, Christ is saying, why stand ye here all the day idle? And he adds, go ye also into the vineyard. Why Why is it that many more do not respond to the call it is because they think themselves excused in that they do not stand in the pulpit. How many of us, when we have someone who we see as a potential Bible study interest, say, oh, I can't wait for you to meet my pastor. <laughs> well, I hope your pastor is a very pleasant individual. and I hope they get along when they meet. But they haven't met their pastor, your pastor. They've met you. So you're there. Go. Why stand you here all day idle? Again, why is it that many more do not respond to the call is because they think themselves excused and that they do not stand in the pulpit. Let them understand that there is a large work to be done outside the pulpit by thousands of consecrated lay members. Long, she says, has God waited for the spirit of service to take possession of the whole church so that everyone shall be working for him according to his ability. When the members of the Church of God do their appointed work in the needy fields at home and abroad, in fulfillment of the gospel commission, the whole world will soon be warned and the Lord Jesus will return to this earth with power and great glory. The gospel, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then the end shall come. She quotes that passage not for public evangelism alone, but specifically in the context of personal soul winning. This is Acts of the Apostles, page 110 and 111. And we have just a couple of minutes for questions. Yes, ma'am. Um, I just had a real quick comment. Sure. It's interesting because we work overseas and the practical aspect of things is so important. My husband teaches mechanics and he okay. takes his mechanic students into the communities and they have mechanic fairs. Instead of health fairs, they have mechanic awesome. Amen. Amen. Same thing, like, we got to use what we have. Yes. Whatever that is and because of this, this last class that we just finished in May, they fixed just stand closer so people can hear you more. Over a 100 pieces of junk. And they got a bunch <laughs> of different Bible study interests because of working fixing people's The junk. ministry of fixing junk. junk. I love it. I love it. Now, I, seriously, especially you've gone to smaller churches and stuff, and they're like, well, we would do a health fair and everything, but we don't have a lot of medical professionals, so I guess we can't. Do something else. <laughs> do the thing that you do. Whatever that is. If you fix junk, make it a ministry. Exactly. Right? But you look at this, and we'll get into Christ's method alone, right? To mingle with them and meet their needs and all that. They're not all... By the way, we have far too limited a view of what medical missionary work is. Amen. It's not necessarily just doing blood pressures and all those kind of things, which praise the Lord. That's very important. Physical health. But I mean, there's broader avenues of mental health and practical duty that would be a bomb to them, right? She talks about in the context of medical missionary work, she literally talks about taking bread to your neighbor and helping pick up sticks in the yard, that kind of thing. That's a help too, right? Whatever you if you've got your little five loaves and two fish, go use that. But everybody's got to have a part in this work. Okay? Thank you for that comment. Yes, ma'am. When we started- the Spanish Church in Kalamazoo. Yes, ma'am. Two Bible workers came, and they went out into the um, laundromats, mm. grocery stores, and got acquainted with some people. And then they went into the homes of the people that they made friends with, and they helped them clean the house, mm-hmm. um, build the room. Very practical ministry uh, thing. Uh, yes. But Very, what we can do. watch the kids. <laughs> yeah. Whatever. Whatever, yeah. And then when the minister came to have the family seminar, mm-hmm. we had a nice group. To beautiful, start beautiful. You know, that's that's because, how you get the start. That's how Jesus began his work. He just starts with those practical things. And we're as we go through, we're going to be looking at this cycle of evangelism. What we're talking about, everything we just talked about was right here in preparing the soil of the heart. Right? Meeting the people where their needs are, helping them, that kind of stuff. But, of course, you Anyone who tills the soil, why are you tilling the soil? Because you're going to plant seed, right? And the seed is the Word of God, right? But why do you plant seed? Because you want to see a crop grow up and you've got to cultivate that thing. You've got to water it. You've got to weed it. You've got to deal with it for a long time before it makes a fruit. And when it does make fruit, you've got to harvest it when making appeals, right? And then once it comes into harvest, you don't just pluck the, the fresh tomatoes and then set them on the counter. You've got to preserve them, right? Or they're just going to rot there. So you got to, and then they become food for the next generation of workers, and it goes on through, right? This is the cycle of evangelism, and so we need every phase of this. And we have one minute. (laughs) But you'll see that churches sometimes have, they'll say, this is, preparing the soil is the most important work. And then they'll say, this is our evangelism. And I'd say, no, 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 no. This is a part of evangelism, right? And then other churches, oh, we, we, we do literature distribution, we, we glow track, we do glow-a-thons, we media, di- great, but that's only one phase. Or we're we always holding public campaigns. Well, fantastic, but, you know, it's, what we need is everyone doing every part of the work. And that's what Christ modeled in his ministry. And that's why we looked at who fed the 5,000. Our time has come to a close, so let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, again we thank you so much for in your infinite wisdom entrusting to us labor for you. Help us to understand what that looks like from your word, from your example and help us to be faithful faithful laborers because we know that the harvest truly is great but the laborers are few. Lord, help us even now to begin redeeming the time and working for you. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.